Thank you, Alyssa. It's good to see you all here. Thanks for coming out and enduring the heat to to worship God and to celebrate uh, as a church and to worship Him. We are in our second uh, message in the series on Habakkuk. And really the theme of this this sermon and the theme of the book is is, uh, enduring and enduring circumstances that are outside of your control that are causing a great amount of suffering um, and, and engaging God who doesn't seem to be listening or caring about our troubles. Um, and so last week we talked about when we saw uh, Habakkuk, uh, the record of his crying out to God as if a, 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 as a, as a woman in labor would cry out and, and, and engage God. And he's looking for an answer. He's looking for an answer from God about the troubles that he sees in, in Jerusalem. This, uh, this last couple of weeks, um, two weeks ago, Alicia sends me a text middle of the day. And she said, Dad, someone stole my AirPods in choir. You know, she had received them as a gift from her grandma for Christmas. And, you know, they're not, it's the Bluetooth connections to your phones, and so they're not cheap. She said, Dad, somebody stole them. I, I went out of the room for just a moment, and somebody got into my backpack and stole them. And I said, well, keep your Bluetooth on, and, you know, we've got the Find My iPhone app, and the Bluetooth AirPods show up on your Find My iPhone app. So they, it, it'll, it'll tell you on the screen where they're at, if they're connected if they're connected to your phone. So she kept her phone on or kept her Bluetooth on and kept trying to connect to them throughout the day. And at lunchtime, um, her phone made the sound that it had connected with her AirPods. And so she told her friends what was going on. And they said, you know, I bet, it's, I bet, it's, I bet that group of boys over there, I bet it's one of them. And so they go over <laughs> and, and there's this kid standing with some AirPods on. And so she follows him around a little bit, and she keeps changing the songs on her phone so that he keeps listening to different songs. And and he starts showing confusion, and and he's like taking the AirPods out, and so Alicia knows that it's obviously him. So she just walks right up to him, and she says, hey, those are mine. Give them back. The guy didn't apologize or anything. He just kind of smiled and handed them to her. But when I was talking with Alicia, I said, Alicia, let's pray about this. Let's pray that God would restore those AirPods to you. And so she got back to me and, Dad, I found my AirPods and told me the story. And I said, hey, did you pray about this? And she goes, yeah, did you? I go, yeah. Now, we all know that that doesn't usually happen, right? Our prayers for I mean, that was a, not a small thing for her, um, and it, not an inexpensive thing, but a relatively minor thing. Her life would have gone on just fine without her AirPods, and mine would have as well. So we pray for small things, and the Scripture says anything that concerns us or causes us anxiety, we should pray for. But then there are big things, big things that seem to never get resolved. Chronic pain, salvation of close friend or family member, financial situations that never seem to end, conflict with others that we'd like to have reconciled. 
just circumstances in our lives where they are of great importance. And oftentimes it doesn't seem that God listens, God is hearing, it doesn't seem like God cares. And we'll go on and on and on and pray for maybe years. And that really, that first four verses of chapter one, it really seems like Habakkuk has been praying for a very, very long time, more than just a few weeks or months. Seemed like he'd been praying for years. Well, today, we're going to see that God finally gives a response and answers Habakkuk. But the way God answers and the response that God has for Habakkuk um, is worse God is going to respond, and he's going to answer Habakkuk's prayer, but the circumstances are going to appear even worse than if God had left them unanswered. And so, what do we do when God not only takes a really long time to answer our prayers, but then answers it in a way that is really disappointing, answers it in a way where things seem to get worse? And so that is the response here. God says that he is going to do something bewildering. I mean, in the way that the text has it, um, it says that I am going to do something that nobody is going to believe if you were told. And so there's an unbelievableness to it. Uh, But oftentimes, when we hear something is unbelievable, it's, it's kind of like, it's gonna be so great. It's unbelievable, right? That is not how God is using the term here. He is saying it is so unbelievable uh, in how bad it's going to be. You're not going to be able to believe or comprehend how bad it's going to be. And literally the other term that it uses is you're going to be bewildered and dumbfounded. It's going to be so bad. You're not going to believe it if somebody told you. He says, I'm going to raise up or I am raising up in your day. So this isn't one of those future prophecies that Habakkuk is receiving that's going to take decades or maybe even centuries to answer. This is something that God is saying, Habakkuk, in your day, right now, I am raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And I am going to use them to execute justice. I'm going to use them to answer your prayer. You're tired of the wickedness and injustice and oppression and bloodshed and child sacrifice and economic injustices and the impression of the poor and and the human trafficking. You're tired of all that stuff, Habakkuk? Good, I am too. I am too. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. And let me describe the Babylonians to you. He describes them in several ways. He describes them emotionally. Here's what they are like emotionally. And and God does this. It's really a striking response because he's not just letting Habakkuk know that he's going to use the Babylonians. He paints the picture of of the Babylonians in such a way that is going to increase Habakkuk's dread. I mean, he really gives a full picture of of who the Babylonians are, and we can all begin to picture these kinds of people in our minds. So from an emotional standpoint, they are bitter, okay? So they are are driven by this resentment and rage that makes them hasty or impetuous. And he says they're also, they have 
they, have the, they are guilty men, or they are men that are full of, of shame. And so they have this anger and this guilt and shame that is driving them, and in their furious rage, they just completely are impetuous and make hasty decisions and, and do not think before they act. So we all know people like that. So not only do they have this emotional drive behind them, they have a military capacity that is unmatched in the entire planet. They have fast and fierce horses with select riders from around the world. Their siege capabilities are without measure. They come to a fortress, the text says, they laugh at every fortress they see. They just pile up dirt to the height of the wall and climb over, take the city and move on as if they were wind, as if it were nothing. They defeat their enemies with little effort. There is no one that can stand against them. So imagine an army full with people that are driven by a rage and a resentment and a guilt and not thinking, not caring. He moves on. What kind of attitude do they have? They, have, they are arrogant. They are without regard for God or people. They make their own law. When it says that justice comes forth from them, they make their own law. They make their own justice. They are accountable to no one. Whatever they do is what they believed to be the right thing. They do not think that there is anything that they need to be accountable to. And they literally worship their military strength. That's what they said. They make sacrifices. They make sacrifices to their own strength. And that all nations fear and dread them. It's like, it's like God, I mean, you're just... You wonder what is going on in the mind of God where he has to go into this much elaboration and detail about the army that is going to destroy them. Obviously, this was not the comforting answer that Habakkuk was anticipating. Habakkuk had lived during the time of Josiah. And... and I would imagine that Habakkuk is thinking, hey, God, why don't you finally deliver a king, a good king, and let that good king have good sons, and those good sons have more good sons. Why don't we, God, why don't you just finally bring us the king? The king that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, the king that you promised David, the prophet that you promised Moses the child that you promised man and woman in the garden. Why don't you finally bring that king? That's what's on his mind. We're going to see in chapter 3 that that's what's on Habakkuk's mind. But God doesn't answer with another king. God doesn't answer with the king. He answers with the most fierce and destructive military force on the face of the planet. So Habakkuk replies to God, replies to God. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He recognizes that God is eternal. He recognizes that God is unchanging and that God is personal. My God, my Holy One. 
And it's as if Habakkuk is entering into a response where he is affirming what he knows to be true about God. Because this response from God has him so blown away that he doesn't really, it, it is so, it's right, it was unbelievable, just like God would say. It is bewildering. And so he start, he's got to take a step back and he's like, okay, God, I, I know you are God. I know you're my God. I know you are an unchanging God. And he continues, we shall not die. We shall not die. I know that we're not going to die. It's a strange response. And I think what he's saying is that I'm holding on to your promises, God, that you have for Israel. Your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to establish a family and a nation forever under a king, the promises to David, and through whom you will bless all of the nations of the world. I know, God, that those promises exist. I know, God, that even though you're sending in the most destructive military force on the face of the planet, I know that we're not going to die. And then he says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So once again, he's starting to remind himself, and he's verbalizing it to God, but I think there's as much verbalizing it to himself. I know you hate evil. I know you can't stand the sight of wrongdoing, God. But now we get to the heart of his response. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. So I think what he means by idly look at traitors. So traitors means that you are engaging in activity that is betraying the people that trusted you. And so I think he's speaking to the, to the ruling uh, elite and aristocracy and, and, and merchants in Israel who are responsible for the shepherding and care of God's people, but are instead oppressing them. They're treacherous. So God is looking idly by while these things are going on. And then in his response, he is doing nothing when the wicked, that would be the Babylonians, are swallowing up more, those more righteous than them. So Habakkuk recognizes that the people of Jerusalem are, are evil. But they are not as evil as the Babylonians. So God, you, you've done nothing about the injustices here in Jerusalem by the people that should be caring for them. But now you're going to bring in, you're actually raising up a people that are more wicked, even worse. They're doing worse things the human sacrificing and human trafficking and economic oppression and the violence and murder of Israel is nothing compared to the evil of the Babylonians and you're using those Babylonians to, to, to come and judge us? I don't get it, God. And oftentimes that's our question, isn't it? 
we see this question repeated if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is trying to kind of explain life. And he says, we grow tired of seeing people who are evil being more prosperous and even oppressing those who are less fortunate. It seems to be a reality of life. And I know that it's something that we as God's people will experience in various ways. God, I don't understand the evil but that's being done against me by the people at work or at school, by my own family. Aren't, why aren't you taking care of me? And he goes on. And so there are no answers. There are no answers in today's passage. And God's going to give some answers in the rest of the book to some of these questions, but they don't really resolve the questions specifically. But Habakkuk goes on. You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the wicked foe, brings all of them up with a hook, drags them out with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich." So he essentially describes this, he repeats back to God the same thing that God told him about the Babylonians, and he's almost like, let me, let, me, let me say this back to you, God, to make sure that I am clearly understanding what you're saying. You have people that are leaderless. They're like swarms of fish in the sea, helpless and vulnerable. To the, to the mighty fisher that comes up with a net and just scoops them all up and drags them off. So that, that's what we are like, Lord God. That's what these nations are like before Babylon. They come in with a net, they just swoop us up. And, 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 and they take advantage of us. And in that oppression of us, they live richly and sensually. And then he asks this question. Is he then, he being the wicked, the wicked enemy, the, the, the evil, oppressive nation, are they to keep emptying his net and to mercilessly kill nations forever? Is this, are you just going to let the Babylonians go on and on and on and swing from one city and one nation to the next and never end their conquest? Are you just going to let them keep getting richer and richer off of the lives of those who are poor and vulnerable and less strong than them? Is this what your plan is, God, to answer my prayer? You're kidding me, right? You've got to be kidding me. Do we ever say that to God? Do we ever engage God in that in that manner. Are you sure what you're telling me, God? Are you sure that this answer that you're giving me, this response as has been worked out in accordance to years of my prayers, is this what you would have? And then he concludes. This is, and this is a, this verse, chapter 2, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, he says this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk doesn't go into self-pity. This is an unbelievable response that God has to his initial prayer. He doesn't run from God like Jonah did. Doesn't abandon his post as a prophet. He doesn't reject God in his anger. He doesn't reject God in the the unbelievable news that he has just told him. He positions himself. He says, I am going to take my stand and I am going to wait for a response. I'm going to wait for a response from God because this one has not been satisfying to me. I will wait. And then he says, and then I'm not only going to wait to what God has to say, I'm going to start thinking about what I'm going to say back to him. Because he's going to rebuke me. The text says, at least the ESV, um, I'm going to look out to see what he's going to say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. It's actually the word rebuke. He anticipates that God is not going to be necessarily 100% pleased with his response. Because he hasn't, it's not like he said, oh God, whatever your will is, I'm going to be completely happy with. It's not what he says. He's like, he's questioning, he's disputing God. And so he takes his position. He's ready for another response. He knows he's going to get one because God finally answered after a few years of praying. And he's anticipating another unfavorable reply. And he's starting to think about what he's going to say back. He's just like us. You know, when we get into arguments with people, we start, we start playing it out. Okay, here's what that person's going to come back with, and I'm going to get ready, and I'm going to come back with this. That's what he's doing. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's not running away. It's not self-pity. It's not rejecting God. He is staying in active engagement. The circumstances have only gotten worse, and he's not backing off. And here's what I think is important to see. One of the things that's important to see in this He actually seems to be energized. He seems to be energized by the fact that he actually got a response. In his study on the book of Job, uh, Philip Yancey, he he wrote this book. It's called um, Disappointment with God. It's a really, really, really great book. It's 25 years old. I would encourage you all to read it or anyone at least that has experienced disappointment with God and so he came he had some circumstances in his in his in his ministry and in his life where he just kept running into people and and times where he he observed and experienced disappointment and he he took two weeks and he went off to Colorado sat in a cabin and for two weeks read through the entire Bible with this one specific question in mind. 
how do we address being disappointed with God? And he, and he made the observation after he was done. He said, you know what, I think a lot of the times that we experience disappointment is because we go to God with expectations that are not valid. Because that's when we get disappointed, right? When we expect something that, that we don't receive. And many times this is how we approach God. So he, he observed, when he studied the book of Job, on this specific question, he said, I expected to find him complaining about his miserable health and lamenting the loss of his children and fortune. If you don't know the story of Job, it's probably the oldest book in the Bible, and it really helps you understand the whole context of the Bible, what's going on on earth and what's going on in the heavenly realm that we can't see, which provides the background to everything that's going on on earth. And so Job is a man that was tested by, by Satan. Satan has to ask God before he can do what he wants to do to Job, and, Job, and God basically says, do whatever you want to do to Job, but spare his life. And so um, Job loses his business. He's the wealthiest man in the land. He loses his home. All of his children are killed, and he becomes a, a laughingstock in the community. He's lost everything, except a nagging wife who tells him to curse God and die. So Yancey says, I expected to find him, Job, complaining about his miserable health, and when he got sores and sicknesses all over, and lamenting the loss of his children and fortune, but to my surprise, Job had relatively little to say about those matters. He focused instead on the single theme of God's absence. What hurt Job the most was the sense of crying out in desperation and getting no response. And so this response that, that Habakkuk receives from God seems to, in fact, energize him. He, he, he's more bold in his response, and he says, I'm going to stand, and I am going to wait. He's alert, he's ready, and he's confident. His circumstances haven't got any better but God has responded to him. And really that's what in many cases we're longing for. Not necessarily just the good responses or for God to answer how we would like him to. Many times we're just longing to know that God is even there listening to our cries for help. And when we, in fact, just like us, when we want somebody to just listen and understand. And when somebody does, they don't solve any of our problems. They just listen and communicate that they understand. That's oftentimes what we need from God. And so this response that God gives graciously energizes Habakkuk. And he's ready to give back, even if rebuked. Now, Habakkuk's response is actually a developed tradition in the Scriptures. And a, and a, and a dynamic, a relational dynamic that's seen in the book of Proverbs and throughout the people of God in Scripture. It's called the dispute. 
And it is something that you see, it is, it is a, a method of engaging God for those who are pursuing a life of wisdom. And wisdom simply means skillful living. For those who wish to live skillfully before God and man, having a category and and an option of engaging God that is known as a dispute is a healthy, wisdom-building, maturing option, a way of engaging God. Did you know that? God wants you to dispute Him to engage and interact with him, to not be happy with everything that is going on in your life. Yes, God calls us to contentment, all right? And most of the time in our lives, we are not fully content, if we're honest with ourselves. And in the presence of that, in the, in the presence of that tension of discontentment, but God's call upon our lives to be content, that's where the battle is at. And see, and and the gospel, which does not consider our sin or iniquity, frees us up, and we're no longer under law, so I don't have to sit with this this weight of burden of not being content, of being convicted in my discontent. Okay, I'm not, I shouldn't be convicted in my discontent in terms of God is disappointed with me and is going to judge me. The freedom that Christ gives us that he has saved us from sin and we now enter into a sphere of grace where God no longer treats us according to our sin. But he calls us. He calls us to a higher life in Christ and gives us the energy through the Holy Spirit to do it. We, can, we are free. We can throw off the guilt and the shame, acknowledge our discontentment, and that's when we can begin. Knowing that God isn't going to smash us in our discontented state, that is where we can begin to know God. And say, God, I am not content, but I want to be. And I am not happy with my circumstances, but I want to be. And I'm not happy with how you've responded or not responded to me, but I want to be. And God, I want to know what you're doing. I want to know what you're doing, God. And that is essentially what Habakkuk's cries are here for. We are on a journey with Habakkuk. No answers yet. But God is going to provide some answers. And they're not going to be answers that are like world-changing. Like, oh, this is the solution I've always been waiting for. It's going to be something that you're probably familiar with. And we're essentially what it's going to be. I'll give you just a little appetizer. God is going to say to Habakkuk, Hey, Habakkuk, it is not all about you. And I am doing some things here that are beyond your comprehension on an eternal, global, and cosmic scale. It is not all about you. But you are a player in bigger events that you can't even comprehend. That's essentially the answer. We'll get to that next week. But we are in this process with Habakkuk to get to the point, because Habakkuk at the end ends up in a place of, of relative calm. His circumstances have only gotten worse, but he has engaged God, and he has come to a place of peace, even though the circumstances haven't changed. That's where we're going. And so to get there, though, we have to to go along with and engage with Habakkuk in the way that Habakkuk engaged with God. How can Habakkuk have this posture? How can 
Habakkuk enter into this dispute? Habakkuk knows God. Habakkuk knows God. Habakkuk knows that God is unchanging. Habakkuk knows that God longs to dwell with his people. Habakkuk knows that God isn't out to destroy Israel. Habakkuk knows that God wants to ultimately dwell with people in peace. It's the story from Genesis 1 on. And what you find in the story is that the people of God continue to just walk away and run away and reject him, but God continues to pursue, to pursue, to pursue, to pursue, to pursue. And Habakkuk is wanting to meet God in that pursuit. He knows that God is sovereign and is working in the nations to carry out his purposes and that his promises to Israel will be fulfilled. And he is standing firm on what he, knows that God, what he knows about God. God, I know you are good. I know you're not going to forsake your promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, to man and woman in the garden, to all of humanity. You're not going to forsake those promises. I know that. And because I know that, God, it, you have empowered me to pursue you because your actions now seem to be inconsistent with what I know about you. So I need you to fill me in. I need, you to, I need you to let me know what you're doing so I can make sense of what's going on. Because my, I am not at that place at this point. Jesus had the same experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to read just a couple of verses out of Matthew 26. Jesus went with them, the disciples. This is after the Lord's Supper. Excuse me, the, the, the Last Supper. He's about ready to be arrested. Jesus knows what's going on. Judas has betrayed him. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I feel like I'm going to die. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you know what? That is repeated three, two more times. Jesus is in this place where he feels like dying. He knows that God's will is going forward, but he doesn't like where he is at in terms of the circumstances and his place in the story at this moment. At this moment. But he goes through it. He goes through it. He's raised from the dead and is seated now above all things in heaven and on earth at the right hand of God. Quoting Kierkegaard, Yancey says in his book, he said, you know what? Westerners, when, when given a math problem, they live like, they live like, they live life like students with their math problems. They don't want to go through the work of the problem to come up with the answer. They want to go to the back of the book and find the answer and write it in. There are things that we need to work through. 
there are problems that we need to face. There are challenges that we need to understand. And there is a God that we need to know in a deeper way. And we're not going to get to that point by just getting all of the answers. We can only get to that point when we can recognize the tension that we're in, throw out the guilt and the shame that oftentimes comes with the, with the places where we're at. And this is why it is so essential that we comprehend the gospel. It is a given that sin overwhelms us. It is a given that our bodies and our minds have, have influence by the flesh. And if we're not Christians, our bodies and our minds are controlled by the flesh, the world, and the devil. But that these things continue to influence us as Christians, and we can't get over them. We continually see that the place that we're at is a consequence of, of evil that we have committed. I was talking to somebody just this week, encouraging them to step out into a different life and to seek God. And his response back to me was, my sin is too great. See, and our, our comprehension of our sin being too great keeps us in the place where we don't feel like we've got the boldness to engage God like Habakkuk does. It keeps us too great. It keeps telling us that, you know, I, I am unworthy of approaching God in the first place. Habakkuk, even though he, he, Habakkuk understood the gospel, not as we understand it, but the gospel that God longs to dwell among his people and has provided a means for us to do that and has forgiven us. Forgiveness was a comprehensible and taught idea very early in Scripture. And so we have to take on that forgiveness and recognize that God longs to dwell with us. He longs to reveal himself to us. He longs to help us in our trouble. There is this problem of evil and sin that is going on in the world, and it's a big picture thing, which we'll get to next week. But if, if we can't throw off the shackles of guilt and shame and a sense of, of, of us not being worthy to approach God in this bold manner, we can never dispute. We can never dispute. And so my encouragement today Seek to dispute with God about the discontents of your life. And if you don't feel like you're worthy of it, that's when you need to really start wrestling even all the more. God, give me an understanding of yourself so I can throw off these shackles.